0: We're going to be looking, remember I told you we're going to skip over our two lessons that we're going to have on divorce, so we're going to be talking, instead of lesson 37 in your books, which normally, chronologically, we would be looking at, we're going to save divorce for when we come back in May, (laughs) and today we're going to be looking at oath-taking and speaking the truth, so it's lesson number 39 in your books, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37... Let's read Matthew chapter 5. You know, I'm going to go ahead and read, since we're skipping over the two verses um, on what he had to say about divorce. I'm going to read them so we just get sort of the flow of where he went after talking about adultery. So look with me at verse 31. We'll just read those two verses and then get into our scripture for today. In verse 31, the Lord said, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, or divorce, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. All right, that's what he says there. And so you probably wonder, how am I going to spend two weeks on divorce? Please come back and find out. All right, now our passage for today. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself... But shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whosoever is more then these cometh of evil. All right, that's our scripture passage. We're going to be talking about oaths. This is the fourth division of our fourth section of the sermon, which we had entitled Reinterpretations of the Law. We're talking about righteousness and morality. We're looking at oaths, and I have subtitled it Insincerity. Remember, the Lord in this whole section is really giving us a commentary on what he had said in verse 20. When he said, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, in these verses, he speaks of truthfulness and oath-taking. He speaks of integrity of speech, which no one, I don't think, in this room can deny is a very, very relevant subject for today, our world today. Our world today cultivates not truth, but deception. Deception. And it promotes it in hundreds and hundreds of ways. Truth is in great shortage in the world today. There seems to be a worldwide indifference to telling the truth today. And this indifference is seen in our international politics and in peace treaties that are made between nations which are only kept as long as it's to the advantage of one or the other of the countries, the nations. They say that in history every peace treaty that has ever been made has been broken. It's It's seen internationally, it's seen in national politics, it's seen in our biased media coverage that picks and chooses what it wants to portray as truth. It's seen massively in our advertising. Um, I just want to uh, tell you a few examples I see in, in the advertising. Of course, probably don't have to look far to see this, but there's one commercial on television that seems to be over and over. I've seen it so many times I practically know it by heart because it's on the Fox News Channel and I like to watch Fox News. But anyway, it's for men who are growing bald. Called Avacor. <laughs> and I don't know how perceptive if you've ever seen this commercial, but they they show the back at the end, toward the end of the commercial, they show the back of a man's head, and in the center he's bald, okay, and, and there's a picture of the before, and he's got this big bald center of his head, and then there's the after picture, and he is almost covered with hair, and you know what it says above it? Sixty seconds later. After he got his Avocor and put it on, 60, I thought I was seeing things. I'm, I could maybe understand if they said 60 days later or something, but it's 60 seconds later, he has almost a full head of hair. That is such false advertising. I remember when we were—we went to Seattle over Thanksgiving, and we stopped somewhere, I think it was in Dallas, Texas, and we, were, we had some layover time, and uh, we were... Uh, Another girl that went with us, she and I were walking up and down the, the corridors of the airport. And we saw this. It was kind of like a perfume booth. And we went in there. And there was a man in there. Man, was he a salesman. And he cornered us. And he had this product that we just had to try. And, you know, put it on. Put it on your face. Go ahead. And he, t- he went through this spiel. It did everything. I mean, there wasn't anything that cream couldn't do. And he just went on and on, and he said, it will take care of rosacea. Mary, some of us know what rosacea is. It's a a skin brush of some kind. My husband has it, and he has a problem with it. And he has a patch on his forehead that sometimes it goes away, but it it always seems to come back. And he said, put this cream on rosacea, and in one minute it will be gone. And so... I went, you don't know how far I went to get my husband. I said, we got to see this. And I brought him back, and I said, Frank, this man says your rosacea can be gone in one minute. He's been dealing with with this for years. So we put the stuff on his forehead, and we waited one minute. What do you think happened? Nothing. (laughs) Oh, I'll tell you what. But people don't care. As long as they can convince you and sell their product, that's all they care about. Uh, One that really bothers me. Is um, it's this Hollywood diet plan or something like that? I think it is. And we actually know one of the young men in in the advertisement because he went to um, actually three of the same Christian schools as my children. And he is in this advertisement, and he says, "It's you know we get excited because we say we know him, we know him." But he's in it, and he says, "My wife and I together have lost forty pounds on this plan." That bothers us because he's not married, and we know he's not married. <laughs> you know, and as a Christian, I, I wonder, how can he do that as a Christian? But, you know, they say, well, it's just acting. But to me, it's lying. It is. it is To me, it's lying. I have a problem with it. All right, but anyway, so we see it in advertising. We see... Um, the lack of concern for truthfulness and integrity of speech in corporate businesses and their practices, in marketing, and in, of course, day-to-day conversations. Truth is just, it's uh, very rare. Just think, about, just think about the whole world. I was thinking about that. Take the whole world, think of how many people live, are living their lives based on lies whether it's false religions or, or cults or the whole evolution thing where you base your whole life on the fa- on on thinking that evolution is fact, and they tell them in school, you know, it's a fact, and teach it as if it's a fact. You go to some of these places like the Grand Canyon. You have your little tour. You go through caves or whatever, and you hear it as fact when in, in fact it isn't fact at all. It's a theory, and it's a theory if you went through us with our Genesis one to three study is, is seriously lacking in any credibility at all but think of how many people base their lives and live their lives on non-truth to, to possess truth like we have and we know the truth truth is Jesus Christ, truth is the word of God is very rare that's why I think, you know, he says that the, the way down the narrow path there's few that travel it few people know the truth but we're so privileged because we do know the truth. Perjury, while on, under solemn, solemn oath, is also epidemic, is it not? How many people really care when they take that? Well, at least we see on the news over and over again. They don't seem to care if they commit perjury. The sacred vows of marriage are broken almost as much as they are declared. God's name is invoked. By blatant liars. How many liars will say, you know, oh, I swear to God, I'm telling the truth. And the sad fact is that the problem of untruthfulness and vow-keeping and integrity of speech even occurs all too frequently among Christians. Now, after having discussed some very, very weighty subjects, such as murder and adultery and divorce, which the Lord did speak about before what we're talking about in this lesson, we might wonder why he would then have proceeded to to talk about such a seemingly simple matter as one's speech. However, hopefully by the end of this lesson, we'll see it's not really that simple of a matter. It's a very important matter. Uh, And we should probably realize by now that the Lord is trying to tell us that absolutely everything a kingdom citizen does or says is very, very important. We are, after all, the salt of this earth and the light of this world. And therefore, we are often the way that people are drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. People are watching us, whether you realize it or not. People watch the Christian to see if he walks his talk. Each of us is being watched by others in our circle of influence. And in a world where, where total falsehoods and half-truths, which in God's eyes are the same as whole truth and in a world where exaggerations and vow breaking is rampant in a world where the father of lies currently reigns as the god of this world the believer who is able to guard his heart and his tongue and out of the abundance of the heart right the mouth speaketh for the issues of life so it's really a matter of our heart again isn't it what our tongue says is really issuing from the heart So the Christian who's able to guard his tongue to speak only the truth and whose word on a vow or whose word at any time is his bond is a rarity. But that's what you and I should be. Our word should be our bond. You know, if we promise that we will be there, we need to be there. And the only reason we shouldn't be there is a death. Yeah, a death. <laughs> if we die. <laughs> no. I mean, an unforeseen situation. Yeah. Not because we have a better offer. Thank you, Terry. How many times do we see that? People, oh, I noticed that. So it just drives me crazy sometimes where people, even in the church, you know, you're going to have a church function and um, they'll sign up and they'll commit to come, but that's only in the case that nothing better comes up. Uh, ooh. All right. Anyway, so we do, as Christians, we have a problem with uh, even us breaking our vows. All right, where was I? Let's see. It's a rarity for the person whose word is his bond. I, I want it to be said of me, and I, as I studied this again, I saw how fall, uh, far I fall short of all of this. But I want it to be said of me that she she meant what she said, and she said what she meant. Don't you Don't you want to be known as a woman? who her word is her bond, her yea is yea, and her nay is nay. And We all need to work on that. But anyway, the one who is like that presents a striking contrast to the world around him or her and really a very strong testimony for the Lord. And this is what we need to be. Jesus wants us to know that in everything we do, whether by deed or word, it's actually word or deed, isn't it? The word comes first. Whatever we do in word or deed, that it is important to him. And this not only includes our overt actions, such as murder and adultery and divorce, but the covert intentions of the heart, you know, anger and um, bitterness and um, lusts, as we looked at last week, and covetousness. And it also includes making and keeping oaths and um, making sure that our daily conversation is truthful. And this includes exaggerations and unkept promises and all sorts of things that we'll talk about. Speaking the truth always, not just when we take an oath, but always. So we're going to consider uh, this subject and look at three subdivisions. We'll be talking about what the Old Testament teaching on oath-taking was, is. Then we'll look at what the Pharisees had interpreted it to be, what the rabbis had taught that oath-taking involved, which was really twisted. And then we'll finish up by looking at Christ's uh, true teaching on what the Old Testament really meant all along. Okay? Okay. So, let's look again at verse 33, where the Lord said, Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. Now, who was that? All the past centuries have accumulated rabbinical teaching. So, not, not, the, not Moses, but the rabbinical teaching written down in the Talmud. All right, so you've heard it been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself. That means you shall not commit perjury but shall perform unto the lord thine oaths here he was referring to several i'm only going to give you a few but but quite a few uh, old testament verses from which the rabbis of accumulated centuries had developed their own teaching of such verses as leviticus 19:12 which says and ye shall not swear by my name falsely of course this is god speaking Ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. And another verse from which they would have extracted their teaching, the rabbinical teaching, would have been in Numbers 32 not 32, but 30, verse 2, where it says, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. In other words, if you make a promise, keep it. And yet another verse used by the Jews would have been... um, Deuteronomy twenty three twenty one, where it says, When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. What does that mean? If you make a vow, keep it again, but, you know, keep it promptly. Don't drag behind before you finally fulfill it. It goes on and it says, For the Lord thy God shall surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. Really, essentially, what the Lord Jesus is talking about when he's talking here about keeping the truth, as we'll look at his words in a minute, is from the third commandment, which is uh, and found in Exodus 20, verse 7. Not specific, you know, There is no specific commandment that says, Thou shalt not lie, is there? But people who would take vows in God's name, or if, even if we do that, you know, I swear to God and then we say something. And then they don't keep it, are really doing what? They're taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So this is the commandment that he's hitting on here, which would be the third commandment in Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And that's something else we have to be aware of. You know, even when somebody sneezes and we just automatically say, God bless you, if we say that without really thinking about it and just say it sort of flippantly, we're taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We're using it just like a little cliché. We really should be careful of those kind of things. All right, from these and other Mosaic passages, some of which I'll mention in this lesson, we can understand then three things about swearing vows and taking oaths. First of all, vows were permitted by God for serious situations. Now, his, God's perfect will would be really that no one would need to ever take a vow or swear in his name. And you know when I say swear in his name, I'm not talking about profanity. I'm talking about an oath. All right, but ultimately it would be his will that all men, their yea would be yea and their nay would be nay and nobody would ever have to take a vow to, to convince somebody that you're speaking the truth. But why, does, why has God allowed for us to make vows? Abraham made vows. A lot of people made vows. It's because of the fallen nature of man. And so he has, just like divorce, it's not his perfect will, but there he has allowed for it because of the hardness of men's hearts. And so since the beginning, with the fall of Adam and Eve, who did believe a lie, that's where it all started, right, was with a lie, Um, he has allowed for oaths so that we can convince people that we are definitely speaking the truth because people tend not to believe. And that's all, it all goes back to sin. All right, so anyway, he does permit for oaths oath-taking in serious situations. Secondly, the people were to make their vows or their oaths for serious situations in whose name? In God's name. God's name. That's what we read. And let me read you another passage. It says, I know you don't have transparencies that would help reinforce what I'm saying. In Deuteronomy 10:20, it says, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. When you take an oath, it says in the Old Testament, you're to take it in God's name. Isaiah 65, 16 says, He that sweareth on the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Alright, so he allows for oaths in serious situations. And in those serious situations, who are we to swear by? By God. By the God of truth. Alright, thirdly, that which is discouraged in all that's which is actually considered a sin in all of these Old Testament passages, is that making a vow, swearing to do something, and then not doing it, in other words, not fulfilling that vow, is wrong. It's a sin. So those are the three things we learn from the Old Testament. He allowed for oath taking in serious situations. It shouldn't be a matter of everyday conversation where we go around saying every five minutes, I swear to God, this is the God's honest truth. You know, if I'm not speaking God's truth, may lightning strike me. That's not supposed to be an everyday situation. We're only supposed to take an oath or a vow in a serious situation. Can you think of one, for example? Right. When you take a marriage vow and you take it and, you know, make the vow before God is your witness. Or uh, when you're in a courtroom and you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Serious situations. And then you're to take the vow in God's name and you're not to break the vow. So that's really what the Old Testament teaches, and it's stressed throughout the Old Testament in many scriptures. The one who is calling upon God as his witness or her witness to the truthfulness of what he is saying or promising is also inviting divine judgment if what he says is not true or if he does not fulfill his vow. Ecclesiastes 5.5. I don't know if this is in your notes. Is it, Catherine? Is it? Okay, it's a good verse to remember. Ecclesiastes 5.5, written by King Solomon. He said that it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay it, meaning to not keep it. There are certain times that um, I purposely do not make a commitment to something because I know in my heart that I I won't be able to keep that commitment. You know, sometimes the church asks us to make certain pledges or vows or things like that. And if I know that I can't keep it, I don't, I don't sign up for it or don't say, yes, I will do that. Because I know the weakness of my own heart. I even have a problem keeping my New Year's resolutions. How about you? <laughs> I, don't make, I've, I quit making them because I know I always fail. So I just forget it. If I lose weight, it'll be, you know, on my own. You know, not because I make a New Year's resolution. <laughs> All right, when a, per- a person purposely breaks a vow that he has made to God, it is really taking his name in vain, isn't it? It's really lying to God. We're lying to him when we've made a vow in his in his name, and then we don't fulfill it. Uh, when a person purposely breaks a vow made to his fellow man, in which he invoked the name of God, he's not only guilty of an act of injustice to that other person but he is guilty again of taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain when when a person takes a vow makes a vow in God's name and doesn't fulfill it or lies about you know actually he's lying if he doesn't fulfill it he's he's lying he is then really uniting God with the father of lies satan so he's unequally he's unequally yoking God with satan God is the father of truth. Satan is the father of lies. So if you make a a vow in God's name, you see how this follows on the heels of talking about divorce? You know, I hate that we're having it the reverse way, but it falls right on the heels of divorce. You take a vow in, in God's name, then when you don't keep that vow, you're being unequally yoked with the father of lies, Satan. Very, very serious in the sight of God. Now, another of God's purposes for the Mosaic legislation regarding oaths was to demonstrate to his people how seriously he views them, how seriously God views them, and and that he would send his wrath and his judgment on those who do not keep their vow or who lied while under oath, which is called perjury today. Jesus referred to it as forswearing thyself. In other words, taking a vow and knowing that when you say, I'm going to tell the the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and you get up there and you're purposely lying, that's called perjury. And you know, men might not always catch it. The jury might say, you're innocent. But who knows that you're guilty? Justice will eventually be had on all of these guys that are getting away with things. All right, so... Um, Where was I? If God takes oaths, and if he takes vows seriously, then what should you and I do? We should also take them very, very seriously. And therefore, we should not go around glibly and half-heartedly, (coughs) half-mindedly, invoking his name to something that we say or promise, as I gave you some examples. You know, we shouldn't, we just should get that out of our vocabulary, where we say I swear to God, this is the truth. This is the God's honest truth. God, strike me dead. Uh, You know, those kind of expressions. We need to get those out of our vocabulary. And it's difficult because you hear it all around you, don't you? And you might have grown up saying it all your life. And um, it's it's a habit, but we've got to work on that. Let the Holy Spirit convict us now that we've heard this message, especially some of us. All right, many of the Old Testament believers took oaths, didn't they? So there's nothing wrong with it like the moravians and the quakers and the uh, anabaptists said that they will not their their yay should be yea and their nay should be nay so uh george fox who was the founder of the quaker movement and and i really respect these people and um you know they say i am not going to put my hand on the bible in a courtroom setting and say that i swear to tell the truth whole truth nothing but the truth because i always tell the truth and i respect that and i honor that and now because of their movement Um, It it is possible to go in a courtroom setting and say, I I will tell the truth, but I'm not going to take a vow. They they understand the scripture to mean that a person is never, ever to take a vow or an oath in God's name. But the scripture teaches otherwise. There were many people, many godly men in the Old Testament, such as Abraham, who took an oath, and God himself swore in his own name. We'll be talking about that. Jesus Christ, when he was... um, Caiaphas, the high priest, adjured him under an oath to say whether he was the Christ or not, and he did. He, he, when he was put under an oath, he spoke out and said, yes, you know, I am the Christ, or you have spoken the truth. And Paul also called upon God as his witness and, and took a, a vow several times, an oath. So, you know, I don't have a problem at all with people. But I, I, and I, but I respect their position on that, but I don't agree that that's actually what the Scripture teaches. All right, we have Abraham. Remember when he sent his faithful servant Eliezer to find a wife for his son Isaac? And he, he made Eliezer put his hand under his thigh and, and swear to God, take an oath, that he would um, swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that he would under no circumstances get a wife from Isaac from the pagans. He would only bring back a woman from Abraham's own people, a woman who knew the Lord God. And we know that, in fact, Abraham himself took oaths on several occasions. One was when he made a promise to the king of Sodom in Genesis chapter 14. Joseph swore to his father Jacob that he would not bury him in the land of Egypt, but that he would carry him back to the, the land of promise, Canaan, and, and bury him there. Ruth swore to Naomi. Um invoking God's judgment if what she said was not true. We know that David and Jonathan also made a covenant with one another in which they invoked the Lord's judgment should they break that covenant with each other. And all of these people took their oaths very, very seriously, and every one of them fulfilled their oaths, didn't they? We also see Paul in the New Testament. He said in 2 Corinthians one twenty-three, I call God as my witness. And even God himself made oaths. He made an oath, a vow, a covenant promise to Abraham and um, to others. And he didn't have to do that. You know, God did not have to make an oath because his word is just as trustworthy and unbreakable without an oath as it is with one. As our word should be also. You know, really, if anybody should be willing to put their hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, it should be the Christian. Because we, we do commit, you know, we know this word is truth, and our God is truth, and we know that he sees everything. So if anybody should be willing to do that, it should be really the Christian. But God didn't have to. He didn't have to take an oath or make an oath in those several occasions when he did. However, again, to accommodate the weakness of mankind, he swore his promises both to Abraham and, if you will look now over at um, Hebrews chapter six, he not only made promises to Abraham and to all the heirs of promise. Are you an heir of promise? Yes. Look at uh, Hebrews six thirteen while I'm talking, and we'll read it in a minute. He made his promises on himself. It says in Genesis 22, this is a quote, and when you look at Hebrews 6.13, where it says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. That's actually taken from Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, where God said to Abraham, By myself I have sworn. Why did God swear by himself? (laughs) <laughs> right, because there's none greater by which he could swear. You know, he couldn't say, well, I call, I call the Apostle Paul as my witness. <laughs> he had to call on himself because there is none greater. It's, and really, when, he, when, uh, when God made an oath like this on these very rare occasions, what, it, it was similar to um, when Jesus would say, verily, verily. Because it it didn't mean that what he said on those few occasions was any more truthful than anything else he ever said, but he did it to emphasize the importance of what he was about to say in those cases. You get it? You know, have you ever listened to when you're you're listening to a pastor give a message and he'll say, um, "Now to be truthful, to to be totally honest with you," and then he'll and I think, "You mean you haven't been all along?" You haven't been honest. And now what you're going to say, he really should probably say, verily, verily. Now, this doesn't mean I haven't been honest in what else I said, but this is something extra specially, you know, important. I want to emphasize this. But he shouldn't say, now, to be perfectly honest with you. And I probably do that, too. So if I do, you know, raise your hand and wave at me, I might not know what you're doing. (laughs) Oh, anyway, let's see. So it's similar to Jesus saying, verily, verily, and emphasizing the importance. Now, by the way, the pledge of God's oath to all of us, as is stated in verse 16 of chapter 6 of Hebrews. Let me read that verse where it says, uh, "Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's all of us, if you're a born-again Christian, you're an heir of promise, Willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by what? By an oath. That I'm in Hebrews six seventeen. You see it? Yes. Okay. Hebrews six seventeen. He confirmed what he was saying to the heirs of promise by an oath. All right. And then it says verse eighteen that by two immutable, meaning unchanging things in which it was impossible for god to lie are there some things god cannot do god cannot lie he is the father of truth all right so by two immutable things in which it was impossible for god to lie we we the heirs of promise might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Okay, now over in 2 Corinthians one twenty two, the pledge of God's oath to us, to all of us, if you're an heir of promise, is the Holy Spirit. And you can read that. It's not only in 2 Corinthians one twenty two, It's in 2 Corinthians 5.5 5 and in Ephesians 1.14. When God pledged his oath to us that he would keep all of his promises that he's ever made to us, he gives the pledge of his oath is the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word for pledged, which is used by Paul, is aravon. And aravon is, this, is the same modern Greek word for an engagement ring. So he promises, you know, it's is really neat. He gives us his promise by giving us the Holy Spirit, who is essentially the same as an engagement ring. And does God does God keep his promises? Yes. Is he going to break the engagement? No. And he promises us that by giving us the Holy Spirit. He hates divorce. Remember that? He will not, and, and the betrothal period to the Jews was the same as, as being married. So as if, what he's saying here in Hebrews, is, it's as if, as if his word were not more than enough regarding all the promises that he gives to us. Is his word enough? Yes. But it says exceeding, what does it say there? That willing more abundantly to show us that he's going to keep his promise. Not only does he give us his promise, his word, but then he has given us the pledging engagement ring of the Holy Spirit to seal his promise of an oath. So that by two immutable, meaning two unchanging things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have this strong consolation, we who have fled for refuge to lay hope upon hold upon the hope that is set before us, we have confidence. That all those promises are going to come to pass. The two unchanging things, I hope I'm keeping you because, you know, I just feel so unprepared this morning. But I hope you understand what I'm trying to say here. The two unchanging things of God are his word, which in itself is sufficient because he cannot lie. But then on top of his word, what he is also giving us is his oath, which he is sealing with his pledge of God the Holy Spirit. Now, does that give you security? Yes. I hope so. Yes. We have an anchor of our soul because we have the promise of God and his oath and the Holy Spirit. Sealed. And it's sealed. Sealed and done. And God doesn't <laughs> break his promises. Uh, and he is a God who is, you know, it, it's, it, he doesn't change. His word doesn't change. You know, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immu- immutable. There is no variableness. Neither shadow of turning in Him. Things can what He promises cannot be turned around or altered. When He, in other words, when He says, "Come to Christ," He also says, "There is absolutely nothing to fear. You will be secure forever. I will never let you go. I have sworn this by my own name, and I have sworn this by my own pledge." You see, our security. Is not in us never letting go. Our security is in God promising that He will never let go. Where are we? In His hand, and in Christ's hand, and there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. You're in in the hand of God, and His promise has been. You know, it's not you hanging on to it; it's Him hanging on to you. Gets me excited. Of all the things that Israel did to bring upon herself God's judgment and God's wrath, her falsehoods were somewhere at the top of the list. Idolatry was way at the top, but I think shortly underneath idolatry was her falsehood. Jeremiah, speaking for God, said, quote, and when I read this, I think of our country. He said, quote, this is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth, and they bend their tongues like their bows for lies. They proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, saith the Lord. That's Jeremiah 7, verse 28, and also Jeremiah 9, 3. Hosea. The prophet was uh, list, actually listing the reasons for God's judgment on Israel. And, of course, he mentioned the fact that she had, had turned to idol worship. She had turned away from God. He also mentioned the fact in Hosea 4:6, My people are destroyed for what? A lack of knowledge. Uh, and, it, boy, if we don't live in a um, biblically illiterate society and nation today, just like Israel... Uh, People are destroyed for a lack of knowledge of God and of his truth. But uh, along with those reasons for her divine judgment, Hosea also listed her Israel's sins of swearing, not profanity swearing, but swearing meaning taking oaths in God's name and then not keeping them. And he listed killing, stealing, committing adultery. And then he said this. This is in Hosea uh, 4, verses 1 and 2. He said, there is no truth in the land. Isn't that sad? For a country, Israel, that was the only country in the world that had the truth? And he said, there is no truth in the land. So it's clear from passages such as these and others like them that truth is one of the qualities that God cherishes most among his people and why wouldn't he if he cannot lie and if he is the God of truth and his son Jesus Christ said I am the way the truth and the life and his if his word is truth remember he said Jesus when he was praying to his father he said sanctify them in thy through thy truth thy word is truth and God the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth why wouldn't he cherish truth in his people he does. And the scripture from cover to cover says he does. So in speaking to those who didn't care about truth, the scribes and the Pharisees in John chapter 8, the Lord said to them, Ye are of your father, the devil. And he said this of the devil. He abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. I got to thinking about that. You know what? that? You know what that means? That means that to God, half-truth or partial truth is equivalent to no truth because is there some truth in what Satan says yeah that's his greatest weapon is to to give a lot of truth and then just a drop of poison but he Jesus said there is no truth in him the essence of rebellion against God then is a distaste for truth The religious rulers were really evidencing their rebellion against God by their hatred of Christ, who is truth. So they're really, you know, in rejecting him, they were showing they were really in rebellion of God. And that's why Jesus went on in John 8 and said, Because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. On the flip side of the coin, then, the, the speaking of truth is one of the evidences of godliness. It is one of the evidences of the presence of the spirit of truth within a person. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. See, that's the whole key. All these people who are living, right, they're living in bondage. All these people who are living their lives on lies, all kinds of There's How many lies are there? Who could ever count how many lies there are? There are people, you know, Buddhism, Confucianism, Zoroasterism, or whatever it's called, communism, um, Hinduism, all the isms, thank you, (laughs) and evolutionism, all those things, all the lies that people have believed and do believe. And the key, they're in bondage, the key is truth. We have the truth. What should we be doing with it? We should be sharing it. It's the truth that sets people free. It's the truth that set me free from the bondage of the false religion that I was raised in and the bondage of my sin. The very foundation for the Christian life is truth. God's word is truth. And Paul said in both Ephesians 4 and Colossians 4 that the new man in Christ would speak the truth one to another. That is so important for you and I to do, to speak the truth. Uh, Let's go on. Uh, Well, anyway, let me tell you this. What the problem was that the the scribes and the Pharisees had come to really, really twist things around terribly in this area of oath-taking. And it really concerned the Lord Jesus. They they very flippantly played around with the truth. And um, let's look now at what the Pharisees taught about oath-taking. According to the Mishnah, which is part of the oral law passed down from generation to generation of Jews, and then finally written in the Talmud. Okay, remember I talked about that 22 volumes of commentary on the Torah? It just got way out of hand. But um, the Mishnah was part of the oral law. Well, according to it, the rabbis had come to the conclusion that when certain substitutes for the name of God were used in taking an oath... Then the person who was making that oath was freed from his obligation to meet that oath. And he was also freed from the punishment of not meeting that oath. In other words, in not keeping his promise. So if they substituted certain things, instead of taking the oath in God's name, if they substituted other things, there were some, according to the Mishnah, that they could get away with and not fulfill their vow. are written down. You can, If you had a copy of the Mishnah, you could open it up and read them. That's what's so amazing. Now, one such example is that a person could swear an oath by Jerusalem and not be bound to keep that oath. If he just said, I swear by Jerusalem that I will do this on such and such a date, he wasn't obligated to keep that oath. However, if he swore his oath facing toward Jerusalem, then he was obligated to fulfill it or suffer the wrath of God and also be charged with perjury in the court of the Sanhedrin. And this is written down in the the Mishnah. Uh, And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5, 34, when he said, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, which is what they were doing, by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You see, the Jews, over the many years, had actually devised a system by which a person might purposely lie and yet get away with it. Essentially, it was a system of rules which told them what to swear by so that they could lie and not be bound to their oath and what to swear by when they could not lie. Isn't that ridiculous sounding? Now, as you can imagine, that which resulted... Over this misinterpretation of the Mosaic law regarding the taking of oaths, of oaths, vows or oaths, was that people were running around very flippantly and every day openly promising anything and everything with an oath. But behind their back, so to speak, they were doing this. <laughs> I don't mean it, my fingers were crossed. You know, those of you with young children, Please don't let them get away with that sort of... And don't you do it. Well, I didn't really mean it. My fingers were crossed. That's teaching them deception. That's teaching them lying. Don't do that. Um, So they had this whole system of finger crossing. If they were caught not fulfilling a vow and were taken before the court for perjury, they could simply quote from the Mishnah and say something like, well, my vow did not count because I swore by heaven and not by God. Or they could say, I'm free from my obligation to uphold uphold that vow because I swore by the temple and not by the gold of the temple. Look over it if you would, Matthew 23, 16. This is serious stuff to Jesus. This is why he talked here in the sermon on about it. And he also talked in Matthew 23, which is his woe chapter. You know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at what he said in um, Matthew 23, Starting at verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. In other words, that's why I just told you. If they swore by the temple, they could get out of their vow. But if they swore by the gold of the temple, according to the Mishnah, they were obligated, they were bound to that vow. He goes on, verse 17, Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctify the gold? He says you got it even backwards. You know, it's a stupid thing to begin with, you fools and you blind. But if you're going to do it, do it the other way around, because which is greater, the temple or the gold on the temple? The temple is greater. Because it's the temple that sanctifies the gold. And then he goes on, he says in verse 18, and whosoever shall swear by the altar, which was another thing they swore swore by, and they'd say, that's nothing, it doesn't count if they swore by the altar. However, but he says, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is on it, he is guilty. That was something else they had written down the mission. That if you swore by the altar, you could get, you could get out of your vow. But if you swore by the gift, the sacrifice on the altar, you were not, you were obligated. And that again was the flip way it should be. And he goes on and says, Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. The altar is is more important than the gift. You know, you could put a sacrifice somewhere else, and it wouldn't mean anything. It had to be on the altar to be a sacrifice. Anyway, verse 20, he says, Whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by by it and by all things thereon, and whosoever shall swear by the temple sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that sw- shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Really, here um, what he, what the Lord Jesus was saying is that uh, that anything they swore by really essentially ended with swearing by God, because He is the Maker of heaven and earth and everything that is on it. He said they were fools and blind for this whole system of vow-making that had become like out, an out-of-control game of finger-crossing. That's, that's the best thing I can um, summarize and, and compare it with, was a, a big game of finger-crossing. People would take a vow by the name of heaven, or by, by the gold on the temple, or by the, the, the gift on the altar, or by, by earth... I swear by earth, or by the hairs of their head. Remember how he said who could make dark hair white or white hair dark? I know that trick. (laughs) But... um, But anything else, anything else they could think of, who do you hear people swear by today? Um, "I swear by my mother's grave?" My, I thought, "Yeah, I know this is so good. <laughs> I swear by my mother's grave." And they would do that. They would th- think of anything they could to impress and convince others that they spoke the truth and would fulfill the obligation of their promise. And this was all considered totally acceptable by the religious leaders of Israel, who were the greatest experts of all at it. They would swear by their beards. <laughs> swear by my beard? I can't do that, thankfully. Um, and on and on. Uh, they would say such things as, these are quotes I got out of books, as God lives, it is true. Or may I never live to see the comfort of Israel if so and so. Uh, they, and what, what they had done, they had falsely interpreted the Old Testament. Such passages as Leviticus nineteen twelve, where it says, Thou shalt not swear falsely by my name. They had interpreted that to mean that it was therefore okay to fall, swear falsely by another name. They weren't to swear falsely by God's name, but they could swear falsely by another name. And then they listed what those other names were. That is twisting God's law. What time is it? Okay. Do we do, do we do that today? Not maybe you and I, but does our court system, does our justice system twist the law today? Oh, man, alive. Do they ever. We, I mean, it's gotten so bad now that we protect the criminal rather than the victim. It, it was a trivialization of everyday language and integrity it became the common practice to convince someone else or whole groups of people that you were telling the truth while in fact you were really lying and so what they created was sort of a spi- a spiritual schizophrenia in other words I'm telling the truth I, I mean I'm not telling the truth but I'm not really lying and you ever notice how many people are so good at that today you know, avoiding. If you ever watch some of these uh, interviews on the news, and and the, um, the the yeah, they'll ask a question and they'll never answer the question. They go around and round in circles. You know, well, I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm not lying, but I'm neither am I telling the truth. Well, evasion of truth is comparable to lying, or talking in such lingo that nobody even knows what you said. Some of them will go on and on and I haven't got a clue what they had just said. That's all this kind of deception that the Pharisees and scribes were so good at. All right, the Lord's teaching. I have to include this real quick. The Lord's teaching on oath-taking. In, these, in verses 34 to 37, he was saying to his listeners, the Lord was, that they were not released from their vows and their oaths, either by man or by God, simply because they may have used some formula or some name which did not specifically mention God's name. He was saying that no matter what a person swears by, he cannot escape including God. A person is not free from his obligation to a vow simply because he swore by heaven rather than by God or because he swore by earth, you know, because as I said, everything belongs to God. Neither can one escape his obligation if you swear by Jerusalem just because you're not facing toward Jerusalem because Jerusalem itself is the city of God. It's his great city. Therefore, to dishonestly or flippantly call upon any part of God's creation as a witness to a false oath is to directly dishonor God himself even if his name is not used in that vow. You know, and you think about wedding vows where some people maybe want to have the wedding vows without using God's name, or, you know, without having God involved in it. But they're making their oaths to one another nonetheless, and it's the same as making it before God because the other person they're making the vow to is a creature of God, and to break it is still dishonoring God. Compromising any truth whatsoever is compromising God's truth. Dishonoring anything of God's creation is dishonoring God himself. Furthermore, that which is true of oath-taking is also true of lies in which no oath is taken. William Barclay says this. He says, quote, Here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments, some of which God is involved and other of which he is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language at home or in the office Um, or in the factory. There cannot be one kind of conduct in the church and another kind of conduct at the home or in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life and in every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, but he hears all words. He doesn't just hear the words we speak in his name, does he? He hears everything we say, and there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into any transaction, including wedding vows that leave God out, secular wedding vows, you know, not even held in the church. They still bring—God is still in that transaction. He says, we will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God, whether the people recognize that or not, end of quote. Now, there are no such things as half-truths. There are no such things as little white lies. There are no such things as just small exaggerations. What about deceptive compliments? Oh, I just love your new haircut, Catherine, and behind... I really liked it better the other way. (laughs) Or no such things as crossed fingers or word formulas that mean we can rationalize or justify a broken vow or a promise. How many of you have ever been disappointed with someone who hasn't kept a promise to you? (laughs) Now, how many people have you disappointed by having not kept a promise to them? How about, as I said, false flattery? I always think of that movie it's one of the old movies when i can't remember who the movie star is in it but i just love that line she doesn't like this other woman and she's in a um where they buy hats what's that called Mill millinery they're in a millinery and the other woman that she doesn't like is put put this hat on and, and, and the star actress says to her oh i like that hat it gives you a chin I don't know why I thought of that, but oh, I love that line. <laughs> oh. How about when we say, I'll pray for you? Yes. You know, that's another thing. I, what we, You know what I've decided, what I need to do is when somebody asks me, will you pray for me? I should pray for them right then. Yeah, it's real, that's probably a good thing because then you did. you did. You did pray for them because I feel so guilty when I... I say yes, I'll pray for you, and then I forget to pray. Oh, well, that's breaking a promise. It really is. Um, what about the lies that we tell to those who are dying? I, I don't know. That's. I don't think that's right. You know. Oh, you're gonna. You know. You know the bad news. It was it was two years ago today that we had my mother's memorial service. Two years ago today, and. I didn't, I didn't lie to her. She wanted me to lie to her when she got the news. And I said, Mother, that's called denial. And she said, You're right. You need to face it. And a lot of times people who are dying want to talk about it, and nobody's willing to talk about it. They all want to lie. And by the way, pray for Faye. Faye Scott, how many of you are in Faye's group? Poor Faye. I went to see her Sunday. Sylvia's been taking care of her, and it doesn't look good. She has not yet come out from when she had the surgery, and she has never come to, and I I guess I can't say too much more, but just please pray for her. Pray for the family. It's really hard. Do they have to make some decisions soon? You can't say, all right, she's a nurse. She's keeping her. Yeah, (laughs) but please pray for Faye. But praise the Lord, she knows the Lord. Um, what about Alzheimer's patients? You know, um, we we had to deal with that. It was my mother-in-law. I think the best thing to do is to when they when they say things that are kind of crazy, like I remember the time my mother-in-law, she was sort of early Alzheimer's, and Frank had gotten her and brought her to our house, and we had lunch, and and then he was taking her out to the car and putting her in the car. And she said to him, you never should have married that girl. You should have married me instead. <laughs> he came back, he said he laughed all the way home. <laughs> Apparently she had him mixed up with her husband, my husband's father, you know. But uh, should, should, we not tell, should we not always straighten them out and say, well, you know, no, Mom, I'm your son. You're thinking of Dad. I think we should. I think we should always, and not lie to them and play their little games. I mean, they're not playing games. They really don't know they're mixed up. But we should keep them centered on the truth. And let me just close with this, too, about something about our children that, that we need to be aware of. Samuel Johnson said this. He said, quote, Accustom your children constantly to the telling of truth. If a thing happened at one window... And they, when relating it, in other words, when telling the story, say that it happened at another window, do not let it pass, but constantly check them. You do not know where deviation from the truth will end. It, he says this It is more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that there is so much falsehood in this world. End of quote. That's true. And when our children, and even when we're telling a story, we need to stick to the truth, and if we don't remember I have a bad habit of doing that. It's bad. If I can't remember the facts, sometimes I make them up, just to make the story good, you know. <laughs> and I'm remembering less and less of the facts as I get older, so I have to be careful about that. But lies, you know how easy lies come into our lives? How many times do you pick up the phone, and it's a telecomter trying to sell you something? It says, Is Mrs. Caldwell home? No, I'm sorry, she's not. This is the maid. (laughs) Or somebody calls me early in the morning and says, oh, I'm sorry, did I wake you up? No, 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 no. (laughs) Or my husband, you know, he'll get a phone call, tell him I'm not here. I mean, we do it, don't we? Ooh, we have to be careful. Paul says, wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. And we're all, once again, are we all guilty? (laughs) Ooh, three accounts. Guilty of murder, guilty of adultery, guilty of lying. Thank goodness that Jesus Christ died for us. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, may our lives... Please be so conformed to the Lord's life that we are known as people who totally are honest and truthful in everything that we do or say. Help us in this regard because I know every one of us needs help. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and giving us your righteousness because, boy, we never, ever could do it on our own. In Jesus' name, amen.